Well, I think we'll start. It's good to see you. Did everyone get the handout? Uh, take a look at it uh, by looking at this page first. I put some extras down there, so take a look at this slide. The the other side, uh, the back said, "Don't you don't have to worry about that till near the end of the class." But the um, when I taught Hebrews in a number of formats, and when I've taught it in a room where I can use PowerPoint. I mean, I have the entire book on PowerPoint slides and lots of charts and so on. I put this chart together because I want you to see something. This is kind of a big macro look at uh, the, the two chapters of, of, of Hebrews, first two chapters of Hebrews. But the author is saying something about the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ is undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in that one person. Now, I just gave you a theological statement that may or may not have resonated with you. But that is how the Bible keeps pressing us. You must think of Jesus in this way. He is a person made up of two natures. In theology, we call it the hypostatic union, but don't worry about that. But that means undiminished deity. And that's how he's presented in those verses we studied, really, the last couple of weeks, as we worked our way through Jesus as the superior revelation of God, verses 1 through 3, and then secondly, his superiority in nature to the angels. And we went through those seven quotations from the Old Testament that are all messianic and showing that he is not only the Davidic king, he is the eternal creator. I hope you remember that we're just summarizing. And so you cannot reach any other conclusion that he is superior to the angels because of his deity. Now, the second, which we're going to start here in just a moment, the second aspect of his nature is that he is fully human. And that will be the back side of this sheet. Why is that important for us? But we'll get to that later, later on. So don't right now, don't look at that and spend much time on that. But Jesus is the author of our salvation because he's fully human as our substitute. And that will be an important idea. What we covered last week is sort of, as, as the author uh, focuses on Psalm 8 and some others, it's like a bridge between the two to remind us of who Jesus is. Now he wants to focus on, uh, the author wants to focus on his work. So I, I hope... I mean, that's why I gave it to you, but I hope this makes sense. Because this is what, often from the pulpit, is hard to do. If you're preaching through Hebrews and you're dealing with Hebrews 1 and 2, and you, you want your people to get the detail and go through each verse, but you want to get the big picture, if you don't take some time and explain it this way, people are going to, they're going to miss it. And so since you don't want to miss it, and I don't want you to miss it, I'm giving you this chart as just a visual reminder of really how powerful these two chapters are. You cannot read these two chapters and dismiss Jesus as just a great teacher. It doesn't work. I mean, it absolutely doesn't work. It doesn't mean he isn't a great teacher, but he is so much more than that. And so again, I'm going to give you the big theological definition, Jesus is undiminished deity plus perfect humanity, united in one person, Jesus the Christ. And the author wants, if you would draw back and say, okay, at the end of two 
chapters of Hebrews, what's the sentence you could use to describe what we've just studied, what I just stated? Undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. That's Jesus. And so verse 10, then we begin to, the author begins to zero in on his humanity. Why is he greater than the angels? Why is his superior revelation? Because he's God, the second person of the Trinity. Okay? Jim, yes. Yes. Could you repeat that one more time? Undiminished deity. Plus perfect humanity, united in one person. That will be on the quiz next week. And so Joel, Joel purposely asked for that to be one more time repeated. So there's no one in this room that does not understand that sentence. Undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united one person. It's like the definition of the Trinity, right? One, God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. You already got that because we talked about that before. I have a gal in my Sunday evening class. She, she was so determined, so determined to memorize these things. Her screensaver are these definitions. I'm serious. So every time she turns on her computer, this is what she sees. That is a student that I automatically give an A to. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, now let's pick up with verse 10. Are, are you with me? Are there any questions? I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of throwing it all out. I'm front-ending all this now so that you really get the importance of what's going on here. And that is what people today, well, I shouldn't maybe say it that way. Often Christians today can't articulate clearly what I was just saying. Who is Jesus? Well, he's, he's a good man. He's a good teacher. Uh, he's my savior. All of those, there's nothing wrong with those answers, but they're thoroughly, wholly, completely incomplete. The Bible does not want you to conclude that he's just a good teacher. He is a savior of the world because he's undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. And as that one person, he comes for the express purpose of dying for the sins of the human race and conquering the penalty of sin, which is death. And that's, of course, what the Hebrews, book of Hebrews is doing. Picking up with verse 10. <clears throat> you did get started on that last week, but you said you were going to go over it again when we... Right. Jim, can I ask you one thing? Oh, of course, absolutely. It says, as the author of our salvation... Jesus is fully human. I struggled with that. It seemed like it should say Jesus is fully God. But remember, uh, he's two natures in one person. Undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. He is the person, the God-man. In my in my books, when I use God man, I don't put a hyphen between the two or put it, you know, as two separate words. I put it as one proper noun, God man. Now I'm not trying to confuse you, but what you are saying is absolutely right. But let's think about this for just a moment, real quickly. For Jesus to be the God man, think of how that is related to the 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 very important issue of our salvation. Jesus, you know, we we say this, we just talked about it at Easter. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's, I mean, everybody knows that. That's a very important part of our faith. Okay, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. What does that mean? He was our substitute. He died in my place. He was fully human. Now, 
if if you were to say, well, as a human, he died for me, that's not sufficient. Because if he's just a regular, ordinary, common human being, he's got the same problem you have. He's got the same problem I have, sin. And so he could die, but who's who who is he paying the penalty for? Himself. Now, I mean, you're following link, the linkage here in your mind. But that he is the God-man, he is not only our substitute as a human being, he is our perfect substitute because he's God. So as the God-man, it is the only way God could do this. You could say, well, why didn't God's plan have David, the great king, die that substitutionary death? The problem with that is David has the same problem you and I have. He's a sinner. And so for the human race to be able to be reconciled to God, God has to pay the penalty. And that's why John 3.16, that wonderful favorite verse, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And that began with, with, with God cutting to Abraham. And Abraham was asleep. And man, he knew man could not fulfill the covenant. And only God could fulfill the covenant. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's this amazing dimension of our faith that involves a clear understanding of who Jesus is. And with that clear understanding of who Jesus is, as the God-man, you know, two, undiminished deity, perfect humanity, united in one person, Jesus the Christ, you see the absolute, it's almost incomprehensible the extent to which God would go to win us back. Right? I mean, you just you really think, oh man, that is the degree and dimension of God's love for me that he was willing to send his son to the cross to die in my place. And that's why the extraordinary statement, it, it relates, and that, that's what gives meaning to it. When John the Baptist sees Jesus walking along the sea of God, remember what he says? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist got it. He understood why Messiah had come. And then, of course, he's forerunner. So, I mean, this, this is honestly... I. I've been in ministry all my life, even though I was in an academic ministry in the church. And it is absolutely true how many Christians, even though they can be children of God by faith in his Son, do not really understand the theology of who Jesus is and can't explain it very well. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a tool of evangelism, although it might be. It's just to truly understand the the theology behind who is Jesus. And when I have to consider who he is, that is a that is a deep-seated, thoroughgoing, sometimes difficult, it stretches us, aspect of our theology. And I uh, I am just I'm, I remain surprised at how many people cannot talk intelligently about God as Trinity and cannot talk about intelligently about who Jesus is. I'm talking about in terms of how we're discussing this right now and what I, I tried to summarize on this thing. I saw a couple of other hands. I, you know, we are supposed to study the Bible here, so that's all right, Witty. I'm kidding. Ask as many questions as you want. Okay. I just was thinking about what you said as he was God-man, 
or is God man? And the proof of that is that he's now sitting at the right hand of God. You know, that's part of the part of the story. Too. That's right. He's exalted, victorious, sheeting, and that's right. Absolutely. And that's what last Sunday, or uh, not last Sunday, the Sunday before, with Easter, that's why that's such a a powerful, exalting, triumphant, glorious day in the church calendar. I mean, it, it is, I mean, at our church, uh, I was there that Sunday. I'm not always there, but I was there that Sunday. And I mean, it was, it was a triumphant worship service. I mean, it was just, it was real. You left absolutely thrilled and excited for the triumph of Jesus Christ over death. Paying the penalty for us and exalted now at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. And that phrase of God man is pretty helpful in to, to Good. Put that together. Yeah. Don't forget it, Woody. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. I and mean, that, that that's a very that's a very uh succinct way to capture what we've been talking about. Always remember he's the God man. And as I said, I don't put a hyphen between the two. I put them together as one word. Um, you know, uh, we, we think of the cross, we, we just kind of go through that really quick, but if we were to take Larry, for example, and he would be subject uh, to the lashes, the whips, the scourging, but, I mean, if we could see him doing what Christ did, because we have an ability maybe to relate to people here, we, we could just see how awful that would be for him to go through that, those mm-hmm. lashes, those pains, the spitting, the tearing out of, uh, of hair. You don't have this, but, you know, and uh, you just begin to get a feel of what Jesus Christ went through to even get to the cross before he ever got to the cross. True. and And then... Um, he did it for all of us. As, it, as the expression of how much God loves us and what he is willing to do to win us back. All right, verse 10. For it was fitting now. I, I mentioned this last week. Whenever you see a word like for, you ought to try to figure out what, where's its connection. It's taking us back to an explanation of the grace of God. So that by the grace of God, he might test death for everyone. He's now going to explain this in detail, focusing on the person of Jesus. For it was fitting that he, now the he there, as you're going to see in a minute, is the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. In bringing many sons to glory, the sons would be all of those who put their faith in his Son, should make the founder... Now, the word founder is, uh, the the Greek word there can be translated author, pioneer. So that's why some translations have author. In the notes, I put author. Author, pioneer, founder of their salvation. Made perfect through suffering. Now, again, I, I remember talking about this last week. When you see the word perfect, what that means is complete. His work is made complete, finished. Brought the, the, the Greek word really relates to telos. That doesn't help, I know. But the end or the purpose, 
So the word perfect is related to that through suffering. Through his suffering, his purpose and plan of salvation was completed. For he who sanctifies, that's referring to Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's referring to all of us who we put our faith in him, all have one source. Who is it? God the Father. You still with him? That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them who, all of us, those who are being sanctified, brothers. Now, what what I'm trying to get you to see is that the author, I know it's hard, sometimes it's in convoluted language. The author is trying to explain the dynamic relationship between the Father and the Son in the Trinity to make us members of the family. So that the Son of God, the God-man, the eternal second person of the Trinity, can call you and can call me brother. Now, if you're not somewhat amazed by that, you're not thinking. In other words, this is what he's doing here is he's focusing on the work of the Son in accomplishing salvation with the result that we are in the family of God now, such that the second person of the Trinity can call us brother. So another way of putting that, and I don't think it's blasphemous or even condescending, in a very real sense you could say Jesus is my big brother. And I mean, so you're, just, you're, you're getting, and the author is just approaching this in, in a rather wondrous way, because as he then quotes from Psalm 22 in verse, uh, in, in the next verse, verse 12. He's quoting from Psalm 22, 22, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Both Jesus, in terms of his Nate, in terms of his being, regards the Father as his Father, so you and me, who come to faith in Jesus Christ, who is our big brother, can call him Father too. And Jesus tells of that to the brothers, to the congregation. My wife's dad, when she was in sixth grade, left my wife's mother for another woman. And this is remarkable. My wife never saw her father after that. He wanted nothing to do with his three girls. They never saw him again. And that, I mean, I honestly, I mean, I'm a dad. I have two kids. I can't imagine doing that. I mean, I just can't imagine that. But it's the depths of sin and arrogance and defiance. But that's the way he was. So Peggy never really had a father. And everything, when I, when I first started dating her, I noticed that. The one thing that was really hard for her was talk about dad, talk about her father. She had no father. And so when she came to faith in Jesus Christ in 1972, when our, we were all messed up and everything, that's when we came to the Lord. But anyway, one of the most <coughs> precious things Peggy began to understand is that God is her father. And one of the most... Her favorite psalm is Psalm 139. But there David is, he's reflecting on who God is. Wherever I go, Lord, you're there. 
and you say to me, I will never leave you. you can, I cannot tell you how precious that was to Peggy. Her heavenly dad would never leave her like her earthly dad did. I mean, that is, uh, even today when there are divorces and the spouse leaves in adultery and leaves and marries somebody else and all that, there's still a connection with the kids. But in, in my life situation, he wanted nothing to do with his girls. And Peggy was the youngest, so there were two other girls. I mean, I, I just, I can't envision that, but that hurt her so badly. But when she came to faith in Jesus and she aimed to understand what the author is saying right here, God is our Father. We can talk to him as our Father. And we can even, according to Mark 14, as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane addresses the Father as Abba, that term of intimacy, Paul says in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, we can address God as Abba, Daddy. We can jump up on his lap, metaphorically speaking, and tell him anything. When Peggy understood that, that transformed her understanding of what God had done for her. And the author, that's the author's trying to get a trying to get across that Jesus is our big brother, so to speak, because we're in his family, because we put our faith in him and what he's done for us as the author, the pioneer, the the uh, founder of our salvation, so that he is just declaring that in the congregation. And then he quoting from Acts from Isaiah eight seventeen, I'll put my trust in him. That's what you and I have done. And then quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, I and the children God has given me, the Son of God and all the children, male, female, every human being who's ever lived, who's put their faith in the Lord Jesus, we're family. We're in the family of God. Now, it's, it's hard to get excited about biblical truth in the middle of the day, particularly after you've eaten your lunch and your eyes are getting a little heavy. But this is exciting truth. Amen. It's profound truth of what the God-man accomplished. But he's not done. He continues in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, The family and the big brother share in flesh and blood. Was Jesus fully human? If you cut Jesus, did his arm bleed? Yes. Yes. Did Jesus need to use the restroom? Yes. Yes. Did Jesus need sleep? Yes. Did Jesus need food? Yes. I'm, I'm being a little bit ridiculous here, but this is what he's saying. He likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So God's plan was that the son would die a substitutionary death to destroy the chief rebel in this universe, none other than the devil. Revelation 12, 9 gives you all of the names and titles of Satan, the devil, the serpent of old, liar from the beginning, etc., etc., etc. So this plan of redemption 
where we become members of the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who is fully human, sharing everything with you and me that defines what being a human is, to destroy the great usurper, the great rebel, the devil, the diabolical one, which is what devil means. And to deliver all of those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Crush the devil and deliver us out of his grasp, out of his grimy, filthy hands. That's not in the Bible, but I'm adding to it. Because that's really what he's saying here. You're enslaved to him. He frees you from that. Jim, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> the sacrifices were the killing of various animals, right? Killing. It wasn't wounding. It wasn't getting That's some right. blood from them. It was killing them. And here, the lamb, this lamb that we talk about today, Jesus Christ, likewise, was killed. That's right. As a substitute for us. Mm -hmm. He died as our substitute. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. All right, you still with me? Any question? Continuing then, verse 16, for surely, surely, and the way of saying in Greek, it is so obvious, I almost don't have to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offsprings of Abraham. All the spiritual children of Abraham, including you and me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Like humans. He had to be like humans in every respect with this result, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That's going to be one of the major themes coming up in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is now our high priest, our intermediary, our one who comes between the Father and us. As the high priest, he, he's going to tell us this later on, he prays for you every day he prays for you. Isn't that an amazing thought? That the Son of God is what he said a moment ago. Sitting at the right hand of the Father is interceding and praying for you. You get in a really tough spot. I mean, I just, I can't, I can't even envision that in a tactile, objective, conscious way. That the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father is praying for me. Just as Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. I mean, you start, the more you study this in the scriptures, the more you see how all aspects of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are wrapped around every dimension of our salvation, our justification, our redemption, our sanctification. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God wants to reconcile us to himself. He is relentless in his pursuit of us. Notice the end of verse 17. A word I hope every one of your translations has this. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do all of your translations have propitiation? Mm -hmm. um, what? 
What seriously? What do they have? Atonement. Oh my goodness! What translation is that? Ah, that's why I don't like the NIV. Well, Joel, here's the word for your inadequate translation. Dynamic equivalent. The word is propitiation. It's used only four times in the New Testament. It's one of those unique words. Oh, Joel, atonement is such an inadequate translation of that word. Are you serious? That's how they translate that. Uh, now that I have got to get over that shock, <clears throat> propitiation, now listen carefully to this. It is an unusual word. It's only four to- used four times in the New Testament. It satisfies the wrath of God. It satisfies the wrath of God. See, Joel, that's why atonement, atonement means cover. The lambs of the ancient Old Testament atoned for sin, covered sin, so that people could walk with God. Jesus is a once-for-all, we're going to read about that coming up in a chapter in Hebrews, is a once-for-all atonement for sin. Once-for-all covers our sin completely. But propitiation is an atonement. It's far deeper theologically than that. Is God angry and wrathful towards sin? Yes, for goodness sake. Isaiah 53 says he poured out his wrath on his son. That's what the author, that's why the author's using that. He poured out his wrath on his son so that he will not have to do that to you and to me. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God, that's the extent to which God is willing to go to win back his rebels who were in rebellion against him. Daniel, is your hand up? Yeah. So, well, I'm sorry, I kind of lost you there. But uh, what's the difference between propitiation and atonement? Pro, uh, pro, atonement means to, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, to cover sin, to cover our sin. Propitiation is a word that means it satisfies the wrath of God. It's much, it's much more nuanced than atonement, much more specific. That's why, I mean, really, I, my, my pastor a couple years ago, my, my uh, uh, boss, lead pastor of my church, wanted me to do a series in five weeks on, uh, on salvation, the key terms of salvation, and I spent some time on propitiation in that series. Because there's a whole series of terms in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that define all of the elements and nuances of our salvation. And that's really important for us to understand that. Because God's God, God character and nature is so complex, and all elements of him is affected by our rebellion. Is he wrathful and angry at us? Yes, because we've rebelled against him. So how's he going to, he's going to strike us down and wipe us out, annihilate us? No. He's going to save us if we choose to be saved. And it's all paid by his son. And that's what the author's trying to get at. How complete, how complete this work of salvation by the son is for us. And he's just using words and language that you don't necessarily see in other parts of the Bible. One other thing is verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those 
who are being tempted. Who's that? It's each one of us. Question, does Jesus know what it's like to be tempted? Absolutely. Remember, temptation means to entice to evil. And, uh, well, you can look at a couple of the Gospels. Matthew 4 is a pretty full account of the temptations of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. Egregious, deep, horrible uh, temptations. And there's an old hymn of the church that I, I particularly enjoy, especially the lyrics, but the, the title of it, No One Understands Like Jesus. When you read the lyrics of that old hymn, it's, it's dealing with some of the things we've read about here, but Jesus really knows. Jesus knows what it's like to be, Does Jesus know what it's like to be lonely? Yes. Does Jesus know what it's like to be betrayed? Yes. Does Jesus know what it's like to, to experience the emotional roller coaster of people saying, I will never leave you, and within a few hours, he's cursed him three times? And of course, I'm referring to Peter. So all of that, yes, he does. So that's why, take a look at the other side of the sheet that I gave you this morning. That's one of the, the, the magnificent aspects of, of the book of Hebrews, the author just dumped so much theology that's all over the Bible into succinct, pretty, fairly easy-to-grasp verses. <laughs> so, what I, what I did there on that chart is four reasons for the incarnation of Christ. Number one, the salvation of humanity who appropriate his work by faith. That's obvious. That's the very first, it's providing salvation. But number two, to destroy the devil. Now that, I mean, you should cause you to think just a little bit. Because here, when I was studying this many, many, many years ago, this and other parts of the Bible, I, did, I remember saying to myself, now just a minute here. When Satan rebelled against you, God, if Isaiah 14, verse 12 and following is the account of that, he says, I will be like the most high. I'm going to top him from his song. When Satan did that, what would you have done if you were God? You'd have done the same thing I'd have done. I'd have snuffed him out. I mean, I, I mean it. I just, I can't imagine that. And the Bible is silent. The Bible is silent on that. It does not answer that question for us. Now, obviously, God would have an answer to it, but he doesn't give us the answer. And then you get further into with Genesis 3, and Satan shows up and successfully tempts Adam and Eve. Why didn't God wipe him out then? And then you have you know, just the spread of sin through all of humanity. That's what Genesis 5 is all about, how widespread the sin is. Everybody's affected by it. And you just think, why didn't we? Now, listen. All I can say is what this book is saying here. God's grace is extended despite the rebellion of Satan and the rebellion of the human race. He wants as many image bearers in heaven with him as possible. And he's provided the way for that to occur. And the way for that to occur is what the author of Hebrews has just explained. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the way in which God is destroying Satan. That would not be my plan. 
But that's how, because God has to redeem, redeem means buy out, has to redeem lost, rebellious humanity. And the only way to do that is to satisfy the wrath and demands of holy God. Jesus does that. And every time a human being trusts Christ, Satan is defeated. Satan loses another minion in his false kingdom. And I hope everyone around these tables has made that decision. I'm studying Colossians in one of my other classes, and we just this morning were in that magnificent passage where Paul says, among other things, we're to with joyful thanks give, give praise to the Father because he qualified us to be an inheritance in his kingdom. He delivered us from the domain of Satan, of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus. That's what the Father's done. That's the author's here saying the same thing. He's moved us because we put our faith in his son from the domain of Satan to the kingdom of his son where we're joined heirs. And that's what he's trying to get at here. This enormous work of God defeating Satan through the cross. The moment Jesus' death was completed on the cross and the subsequent resurrection, Satan was totally defeated and his days are numbered. And he can count. Number three. We're going to talk a lot about this. This is one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews, to be our merciful and faithful high priest. His sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. He's now our intermediary. He's our mediator between the Father. He is the one who prays for us. He's the one, in 1 John 2, one who's our advocate. When Satan accuses us, Jesus stands and says, Jim Ekman is mine. I purchased him. He belongs to me. Leave him alone. That's part of his role. And then finally, to help those who are tempted. And that is something you and I, and I'm sure you've already employed that. When you're experiencing temptation, when you're in those really rough times, cry out to Jesus. Ask him for the enabling help. Does he know what you're going through? He does. He knows every dimension, not necessarily every specific temptation, but I mean the dimension of every aspect of temptation, he knows what it is. And he can identify with us and he helps us. That's why Paul says with great boldness, no temptation has ever come upon you, except that's just common to man. But God will, with the temptation, give you a means to escape. But only if you want it. If you don't want it, he's not going to send it. But if you want to have, and that's, that's part of our growth and a maturing in Christ, is more and more to cry out to him and depend on him for help in those times of real need. Jim, when, when we sin, sometimes we think, oh, you know, I've, I've lost it, or I, there's no hope for me. I just I keep falling back into this. How would you address that, that thought that comes across our minds from time to time where we have failed to be what we know God would want us to be? Well, I think step one, I hate to put it into a series of bullets, but step one is always, 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 always to remember who you are in Christ. 
You're secure. Your identity is secure. You are a child of God. Your destiny is secure. You are going to heaven. This this relationship between you and God that your sin has broken can easily be restored by simply agreeing with God on what you've done. And I mean, just say, Lord, I'm sorry, whatever it is. And it does not, there is nothing in the Bible that says, matter of fact, Jesus does address that in his dialogue with Peter. There's nothing in the Bible says that there's a limit to how many times God will forgive us. Do you understand what I mean by that? If you fall and you need God to pick you up, he'll say, okay, I'm using the, the, the number Peter uses, 70 times 7, okay, when 70 times 7, then I won't pick you up anymore. Is that what the Bible says? No. <laughs> you see, th- this is one of the this is one of the I think one of the most effective tools the evil one uses in a believer's life. You're struggling with sin and you fall and stumble, 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 multiply that however many times you want. One of those times you're gonna say, I am so bad and so hopeless. No nothing Jesus could do could ever help me. That's a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You are never, ever outside the reach of God's grace and enablement and help. And I mean, every time, and this is, I mean, I've worked with a lot of young guys when I was in academic ministry, and that was one of the most important things to help them grow, because part of the mission of our institution was to not only excellence in biblical education was part of our mission, but also to to help them become disciples in a personal discipling environment. That meant we care about your life. And if you're going to be successful and you're struggling with some sins, we got to help you with that. And we invested a lot of financial and human resources in helping men and women deal with a lot of those things in their lives. And you have to do that. The church is like that. And so it's giving hope in the midst of defeat. And young guys that are struggling with pornographic addiction, or young guys that are struggling with alcoholic issues or drug or whatever it is, you're not hopeless. You put your faith in Christ. It is not hopeless. But it doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. And so one of the great qualities of our Lord is he's patient. He's long-suffering. You may give up on yourself, but he'll never give up on you. And never, 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 never. And I used to tell the guys, you sin, you stumble again, pick yourself up, put your hand back in Christ and get going. And that's what the, you're going to see this later on in Hebrews chapter 4. He's going to say, stop looking back. Press on. You know, so many Christians, they go into each day in the future with their eye on the rearview mirror and their foot on the brake. I mean, that's, that's growth to them. That's not growth to Jesus. Get your eye off the rearview mirror and your foot off the brake and go forward with your hand tightly in Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians, I don't look back. When I look back on my life, I see crap. I'm sorry to be, you never heard me use that word, but that's what I see. I don't want to look back. I'm, and I'm, getting, I'm really emotional here. I didn't mean to be, but I, I've worked with so many guys, that's where they're at. They keep looking back. No, Jesus can't possibly help me. Yes, he can. But you've got to want it. And put your hand back in his and get going. 
and sometimes I metaphorically hit him on the side of the head with a two by four. Never literally, but you know, sometimes I get so frustrated. But they, you know, I used to say one of my great joys. Can I digress for a moment? One of my great joys, because I always uh, was at commencement. I always handed out the diplomas. And to see some of these men and women, I can remember some of them, their first week of class, and I'd look at them, why in the world do we let you in here? What are you doing here? And yeah, just, oh, you see all then you get to know me. But then four, sometimes it would take them five years. Then you just see what God did in their lives in four or five years. What an amazing, amazing opportunity to know you had a tiny little part in some of those lives. That's, I just think that's, what, that's how Jesus is all the time. Look at how my children are growing. He's not looking at you right now. He's looking at you and what you used to be. He's looking at what you're becoming. And he's so excited of how you're growing. That's biblical. He is excited about your growth. No matter how infinitesimally small and arduous it is, that's the Lord's perspective because he helps those who are being tempted. He knows what it's like. So you look at this magnificent discourse that the author's just given us, 10 through 18, we reach this conclusion. That's what It's in the bottom of that slide. Jesus is fully God, fully human. He's the God-man, fully human to be our substitute for sin, fully God to be our perfect substitute. Only he can do it. I can't do it for you guys because I got the same problem you do. Someone who's perfect can set, he's the perfect lamb of God. All right, we did it. And we still have 11 minutes left. So it's not if we sin again, it's when we sin again. Say that again, please. You you meant if we sin again, it's when we sin again. Yeah, if, not if, it's when, yeah. Or since we sin, (laughs) but yeah. And while you you had talked in earlier books about the root is exaltation, right? You just pick yourself up, you persevere, you keep moving. That's right. Keep moving forward. They also covered in Mark the unforgivable sin. So it's the last one I'm always parent. So how do you tie that piece of it with what you just covered? Such a small bunny trail. Um, well, first of all, the words of Jesus, it, you could look at Matthew 12, which is a really full account of it. There's a lot of the context. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees, and he's speaking to a group of spiritual leaders in first century Judaism who have said this to explain the miracles that Jesus is doing. Remember what they say? He's doing his work by the power of Beelzebul, a Canaanite name for Satan. Now, I don't know how you look at that, but that is shocking. They're dismissing Jesus and all his miracles as satanic. He's Satan. And Jesus, the text says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said... You know, if you continue with that line of thinking, you are on the verge of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And that's unpardonable. Now, what does he mean by that? Because Jesus had said when they 
we're saying he does his work by Beelzebul, Canaanite name for Satan. Jesus had just said, I do all my work by the Spirit. I do all my work by the Holy Spirit, which reflects, again, that reliance and dependence and interconnectedness of the Father, Son, and Spirit and redemption. And so they're saying, no, you don't. You do it by Beelzebul. And Jesus says, if you really believe it, because he had just said, who is the witness as to who I am? The Father is my witness when he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit is my witness when he came upon me and anointed me for my work and is enabling and empowering me to do. And by my words and my works, you have all proofs as to who I am. And if you deny all through those proofs, it's unforgivable. There's no more evidence. There's no more opportunity for you to respond. This is the evidence. And if you reject all that, that's an unforgivable and unpardonable because there's no more hope for you. You're rejecting every evidence that is possible for who I am, every testimony, every witness. So if you really believe that and really follow through with that, you're doomed. And that's the unpardonable sin. A wholehearted, intentional, bold, um, defiant rejection of every single witness there is as to who Jesus is. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about um, if you believe that at one point in your life and another point in your life you come to realize that what you're believing isn't true and you embrace Is there still hope for you? Yes. There's hope for a person until the very last breath they take. So that's a very short answer to your question. Woody. Yeah. Uh, speaking like a brand new Christian, but a question coming to my mind. When I'm praying, like in the Lord's Prayer, I'm praying to the Lord, and I'm praying to Jesus, and I'm praying to the Holy Spirit, and when we talk about the God-man, should I be praying to Jesus, or should I be praying to God, or when I pray to God, am I praying to all three? Uh, If you address Jesus, I think it's okay. If you're the Father... You know, there is a saying that maybe is applicable here. You pray to the Father through the Son by means of the Holy Spirit. That's a real fancy way of putting it. Most of us don't think of that way. But it, it, if you just think of just the what we often call the Lord's Prayer, when it's Sabbath day, you know, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And remember, he says, Our Father. So to address God as Father is one of the most privileged, one of the most privileges, privileged things we can do as a child of God is call him our Father. And then, but if you you pray to Jesus, I mean, I in many, 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 many points in my life, I've just cried out, just Jesus, help me, Jesus, I need you. I don't think I don't think it really is. I don't mean to speak for God, but I think I'm on fairly sound ground here. I don't think it matters to the Lord how you address him particularly. If you cry out to Jesus or cry out to the Spirit for help, I need your fruit at this point. I mean, I think it's okay with them. They're up there saying, we got to teach this Woody. He's supposed to just, I don't think God up there saying that. Joel, I thought I saw another hand on the right hand. Okay, didn't see one. Now we got a few more. Can I move into the next chapter? Any other questions? Yes. All right. That's good. All right. Yes. <laughs> now, chapter three 
is introducing what's going to be get more and more complicated. But chapter 3 introduces an item that maybe isn't as important to you and me as it was to these first century Jewish Christians. Jesus' superior revelation, first three verses, superior to angels, and we just went, and this, this superior work of Jesus in redemption. Now he begins chapter 3 by showing his superiority to Moses. Why would that be so important? Moses was a deliverer. Let him out of Egypt. Moses was the lawgiver. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. We call it the law of Moses. I mean, all of these, Moses, probably next to Abraham, is the most important historical figure to a Jew. I mean, he's their hero. He's, I mean, he just, everything, everything in their history revolves around what Moses did. He led them out of bondage of 430 years in Egypt. He led them to Mount Sinai where they received the moral law of God. He's the one that led them up along the, well, after the wilderness wanderers, but up along the east side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River, ready to lead them into Canaan. He's He's the most important thing figure in the historical development of Judaism from just a concept in the mind of God that he shares to Abraham, it's all operationally delivered and put into effect under Moses. They become a people, a nation. They receive their constitution, and they receive their land. Moses facilitated it all. I mean, he's just... So Jesus, the author, has to establish that he's superior to Moses. He's greater than Moses. So, therefore, I'm starting in in verse 1 of chapter 3. We'll just get it introduced and pick up on it next week. Therefore, based on what he just said in verse 17, Jesus is our high priest. Therefore, holy brothers, Family language. Family language. You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now that little phrase, heavenly calling, um, it's kind of unusual. But it is a phrase that the author will use to summarize the new order, the new covenant, the whole new thing God's doing. You're part of it. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, we won't have time to do all of this, but let's let's work through this. The author uses three terms here. Consider Jesus, the apostle. The apostle of our... What does that mean, apostle? You think, well, that's unusual. I've always known Peter was an apostle, and James was an apostle, and Paul was an apostle. But the author here is calling Jesus 
as an apostle. What does apostle mean? Representative. Representative. Sent out one. Commissioned one. With authority. Was Jesus sent by the Father? Yes. Was Jesus commissioned by the Father? Yes. Did Jesus have the authority of the Father? Yes. So, appropriately, you can call him an apostle. And high priest. Now, again, that he's just introducing this. It's going to really develop. But that intermediary, our intercessor, you see, Moses was an intercessor. How many times did Moses come between God and the people of Israel? How many times did he stand in the gap? How many times? Over and over and over and over again. So So Jesus, the high priest of our confession. It's an unusual term here to use, but... Remember, in the English word confession can mean as like an act, like a verb, where you're confessing, you're agreeing with God. So, But confession can also mean a body of belief, a belief system, a set of articles of what you believe. That's why um, you, if you study church history, you read about the confessions of the faith. Um, during the Reformation, it was held... Biffic Confession, the Heidelberg Confession, the Augsburg Confession, or you go back earlier in church history, the Chalcedon Confession. These are statements of faith, of what we believe. So what the author is doing is he's tying Jesus in his role as an apostle and a high priest of what we believe, our belief system. Let's put it another way, of our doctrine, of our theology. And so the author is trying to get us to think deeply about who Jesus is. He's been doing that in the first two chapters. Now he's going to move to another level because he wants to start to elaborate on this role of Jesus as our high priest. Got it? Next week we're going to really, really dig into this. We covered a lot of deep stuff today. You know, one time I was teaching and a lady came up to me and said, my brain is tired. And so maybe today your brain is tired. I hope not. But this is rich stuff, guys. I mean, this is the deep things of our faith. So again, tomorrow I'll call you in the morning. I'll call you up at 2 a.m. And I'll say, who's Jesus? And you rub the sleep out of your eyes and say... Jesus is undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. He's my God-man. Good answer. Go back to sleep. Then you hang up the phone and go back to sleep. I won't do that. Yes. Then I might follow up. Now, Rudy, what exactly does that mean? Or you say, oh, what's undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person? Oh, good. Okay. Many, many, many years ago, I mean decades ago, I used to say that to my students. It was 2 a.m. in the morning and my phone rang. We still had a land phone, so it was a long time ago. And on the other end of the line was complete silence. What are the odds that was one of my students? <laughs> Pretty high, don't you think? So anyway, let me pray here. Father, we've covered some deep, deep things of our faith, of our confession about Jesus. Chapters 1 and 2 of this book are 
majestic and glorious descriptions, filling in a lot of the details about who Jesus is. He is fully and completely human, such that he knows what it's like to be tempted and he can help. But he's also God. He's far superior to the angels. He's the eternal son. He's the creator. He's the eternal one. He's a Davidic king. He's the Messiah. All of those titles that reflect those quotations from those seven Old Testament passages. Oh Lord, when we think and contemplate and meditate on who Jesus is, we always come away just amazed at your grace, that you were willing to do that much to rescue us, to save us, to redeem us. But that's the bottom line. That's the truth. That's how far you were willing to go. And Lord, for all eternity, we will praise you for that. We are your children in faith by faith in Christ. Jesus is our brother. We are part of the family of God. And that's a glorious thought in and of itself. And again, we thank you and praise you for that. Be with these men. I thank you for each one of them, what you've been doing in their lives, how you've rescued them from the kingdom of Satan and have transferred them to the kingdom of your dear son when they put their faith in you. They're growing in their faith and dependence in you. We trust them to you. May you continue your work of sanctifying grace in their life for your own personal glory. And it's in that precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.